Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Who Are You? It's based upon the lectionary readings for December 13th, 2020, the third week of Advent. My daughter is writing graduate school applications this month, which means she spends a lot of time crafting strategic answers to one question. Who are you? If you've ever applied for an internship, job, or grant, you know the drill. If you've ever obsessed over your Facebook profile or spent hours perfecting a tweet, you know how complicated the question can get. Who are you? What is your brand? What carefully packaged version of yourself do you wish to show the world? Beneath the questions of presentation, though, are deeper and far more significant questions. Who are you really? When no one is watching, when you've let your guard down, when it's only you and God hidden away from the world, who are you then? On this third Sunday of Advent, our Gospel reading gives us John the Baptizer, confronting this very question at the start of his public ministry. He has barely taken up his post at the banks of the Jordan River when his interrogators, priests and Levites from Jerusalem, show up to classify and contain him. Who is this wild, disheveled preacher calling people to repentance? Where does his authority come from? Is he crazy? Is he a threat? Is he, dare they entertain the possibility, an actual messenger from God? John prefaces his answer to the religious leaders by saying who he is not. I am not the Messiah. I am not Elijah. I am not the prophet. Perhaps we would do well to begin where John begins. Before we can figure out who we are, we have to clarify for ourselves and for the world who we are not. We are not Jesus. We are not saviors. We are not infallible. We are not omniscient. One of the costliest mistakes the historic church has made is to claim identities, powers, and privileges that don't actually belong to us. When we Christians adopt messianic ambitions for ourselves, either personally or corporately, we hurt ourselves, we hurt others, and we hurt the cause of Christ. When we make promises we can't keep, promises of prosperity, promises of immunity, promises of consumer-based peace and blessing, we become stumbling blocks to those who seek consolation in Jesus. In contrast, John begins his ministry from a place of humility. He doesn't allow his calling to go to his head. He doesn't claim any identity that doesn't belong to him. He makes his listeners no promises of ease and comfort. He simply asks them to prepare themselves for the one who is greater than himself. He stays in his lane. I am not the Messiah. To be clear, this version of self-abnegation is not weak or masochistic. It doesn't require a denial of John's gifts and abilities. No one who reads the prophet's story can call him anything other than strong, self-possessed, and authoritative. But John knows both the source and the purpose of his authority. Celebrity holds no attractions for him, and neither does religious or political power. Hence, he carries out his vocation in the wilderness, far from the centers of power and prestige in Jerusalem. We begin by comprehending who we are not. But as Christians, we can't define ourselves solely in the negative, even when it's tempting to do so. I've certainly done it, and perhaps you have too. Oh, I'm not that kind of Christian. I would never attend that kind of church. I don't read the Bible that way. 
the Jesus I believe in has nothing to do with that theology. Many of us who practice some form of progressive Christianity feel an ongoing need to define ourselves in the negative, especially if we live in cultures that are post-Christian or anti-Christian. We fear being tainted by association if we don't. I understand this impulse and maybe it has its place, but a negative answer to the question of Christian identity isn't a full answer. It's not a loving, inviting, or hospitable answer. It's a defensive answer, an answer that erects walls instead of tearing them down. The thing is, who are you is a very large question. It demands something more embodied and invested than a string of rejections and repudiations. It asks us to do deep work. It asks us to interrogate what we hold dear, what we trust, what we love, and why. Once we've peeled away everything we are not as followers of Jesus, what's left? After we've figured out what we don't support, believe, espouse, or love, what version of faith remains? What positive, vibrant, living core will we offer to the world in the name of Jesus? John's answer to the question is clear, unequivocal, and startling. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. What sort of countercultural answer is that? In a world that promises accolades to those who promote and amplify themselves, John chooses total humility instead. I am a voice pointing away from where I stand. I am a pathmaker for feet other than my own. I am a witness speaking on behalf of someone other than myself. If this isn't surprising to you, then consider again what you know of the Wilderness Prophet's biography. After all, this is John the Baptist we're talking about. John, whose very conception occasions an angelic visit. John, who leaps in his mother's womb at the first glimpse of a pregnant Mary. John, whose fiery preaching draws huge crowds to repentance. John, who sees the heavens open up and the Spirit of God descend like a dove on the newly baptized Jesus. He is a young man who grows up with the most outsized expectations ringing in his ears. Even as a child, he feels the exhilaration and the burden of his high calling. Before he is even 30 years old, he draws crowds so vast the religious authorities feel threatened by his very presence. This is the man who chooses to define himself as a voice in the wilderness, as a prophet unworthy to untie the thongs of Jesus' sandals, as no more than a forerunner, as a mere witness to mystery. What strikes me most about John's story is that he continues to bear witness to this mystery, even when the mystery completely baffles him. We know from other gospel accounts that he doesn't always understand his cousin's mission and ministry. We know that he suffers grave doubts about Jesus during the weeks or months he languishes in prison. We know that he struggles to reconcile his own assumptions about the Messiah, a Messiah of fire, judgment, and justice, with the Jesus who shows up at the Jordan seeking baptism, a Jesus of tenderness, humility, and vulnerable making love. And yet John stays true to his identity. His answer to the who are you question never wavers. Even when his prophetic vocation of truth-telling leads to his imprisonment, he stays true to the person God calls him to be. The third Sunday of Advent is traditionally called Gaudete or Rejoice Sunday. In many churches, the penitential purple of the season is put aside this weekend in favor of a lighter, happier rose. Most of the lectionary readings emphasize celebration, anticipation, and joy. This feels right to me, given our gospel. 
we do tap into joy when we rightly understand who we are in the kingdom and economy of God. New life and fresh joy well up when we align our self-understanding to God's calling, and we recognize that we, like John, are meant to point away from ourselves towards Jesus. Joy surprises us when we decide to forge paths in the wilderness, when we make way in difficult places for someone greater than ourselves. Joy multiplies when we level oppression, injustice, and suffering so that all flesh can see God together. What is your answer to the question of identity? Who are you during the sacred season of preparation? Are you a voice, a witness, a pathmaker, a wilderness dweller? Whatever your desert looks like, wherever your Jordan River is located, who are you in that place? Very soon, the one you're waiting for this Advent will come, and the question on his lips will demand a wholehearted response. Who do you say I am? Consider the possibility that these are linked questions. Who you are shapes who he becomes in your life. The self you cultivate and curate is the self who will receive the Christ and make him known to a world that needs him. So again, who are you? For books this week, Dan reviews Permanent Record by Edward Snowden. Edward Snowden will always be remembered for singular, brave, or brazen act. In May of 2013, he flew to Hong Kong, where he documented to the journalists Laura Poitras and Glenn Greenwald how the United States NSA and partner countries operated a vast, secretive, and unimaginably powerful system of mass surveillance that was unaccountable to any judicial warrants, public or congressional oversight, and that flagrantly violated the Constitution. In effect, the American government was digitally spying on anyone it wanted through its bulk collection of data and metadata, including spying on at least 35 world leaders like Angela Merkel. Apart from the legal, political, and ethical ramifications of such mass surveillance, for Snowden, this was first and foremost a radical subversion of the norms of a liberal democratic society. And so whereas he has been called many things, a traitor, leaker, dissident, spy, and scapegoat, he considers himself a patriotic whistleblower. That's why he released his book on September 17, 2019, which happens to be Constitution Day. Indeed, he notes that America was born from an act of treason against England's oppressive government of that day. And his first whistleblower act of 1778 didn't just honor acts of principled dissent, it enshrined such acts as duties. In this memoir, Snowden explains how and why he forfeited his successful career, left his family, risked a life of imprisonment, and has lived in exile in Moscow for seven years, about the same period of time that he worked for the NSA and CIA. A high school dropout his sophomore year, he earned his GED that same year. A computer prodigy, by age 22, he had earned the country's highest top-secret security clearance. That gave him unparalleled access to the country's most powerful surveillance programs. Quote, deep in a tunnel under a pineapple field, I sat at a terminal from which I had practically unlimited access to the communications of nearly every man, woman, and child on earth who had ever dialed a phone or touched a computer. Close quote. And again, quote, it was simply put the closest thing to science fiction I've ever seen in science fact, an interface that allows you to type in pretty much anyone's address, telephone number, or IP address, and then basically go through the recent history of their online activity. In some cases, you could even play back recordings of their online sessions so that the screen you'd be looking at was their screen, whatever was on their desktop. Close quote.
Snowden has been charged with theft of government property and two further charges under the 1917 Espionage Act. On the day that this book was released, the American government also charged him with violating non-disclosure agreements that he had signed with the federal government. His disclosures have generated extensive public debates about national security and individual privacy. In early 2016, Snowden became the president of the Freedom of the Press Foundation, a San Francisco-based organization whose purpose is to protect journalists from hacking and government surveillance. For the movie version of this drama, see the documentary Citizen Four. Finally, a technological footnote. First, the story of mass surveillance is more than seven years old. Nor does it consider mass surveillance and data collection by companies like Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Apple. The week that I read Snowden's book, Google made two public announcements. First, device chief Rick Osterloh said that anyone with a smart device like Nest or Amazon Echo should advise their house guests that their conversations were being recorded and that he does this for his own guests. Second, in the October 23, 2019 edition of Nature, Google said their quantum computer called Sycamore solved a particularly difficult problem in 200 seconds. It also claimed that the world's current fastest classical computer, IBM Summit, would take 10,000 years to solve that same problem. The experts debate these claims, pro and con, but this gives you an idea of the power of computing today, compared to seven years ago, and how that could be used for surveillance. For films this week, Dan reviews for Sama. This war movie from Syria, which is also a heartbreaking love story, has made all sorts of movie history for the sheer number of awards it has won. 59 wins and 42 nominations, including to IMDb, including Best Documentary at Cannes, and a nomination for Best Documentary at the Academy Awards. Wad al-Khatib was an 18-year-old economics student at the University of Aleppo when the uprising against Assad's government broke out there in 2011. As a rebel in the resistance movement, she fell in love with Hamza al-Khatib, one of just 32 doctors left in Aleppo, Syria's largest city. They married and had a baby girl named Sama, whom we meet in the first minute of the movie. As a document of the war and a testament to her newborn daughter, Al-Khatib filmed the merciless six-month siege of Aleppo in 2016, when the Syrian government, with the help from Russia, bombed the city into oblivion. The UNHCR has said that crimes of historic proportions were committed during the siege. What a life I've brought you into, says Al-Khatib to Sama. You did not choose this. Will you ever forgive me? Sama, I made this film for you. Should they stay in Aleppo in order to fight for liberation and serve the needy, or should they flee for the safety of their newborn Sama? I watched this movie on the PBS Frontline website. It is also available on Amazon Prime. And lastly, during this third week of Advent, a poem by U.A. Fanthorpe, B.C. A.D. This was the moment when before turned into after, and the future's uninvented timekeepers presented arms. This was the moment when nothing happened, only dull peace sprawled boringly over the earth. This was the moment when even energetic Romans could find nothing better to do than counting heads in remote provinces. And this was the moment when a few farm workers and three members in an obscure Persian sect walked haphazard by starlight straight into the kingdom of heaven. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for December 13th, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.